recently, just for the fun of it, I took one of those online surveys. You know how these are all over the internet? You can, yeah, which Golden Girls character are you? Which of the seven dwarfs are you? Which character from Star Trek or the Wizard of Oz are you? These are all over the place. Um, this one that I took in particular was on the Psychology Today website. I don't know how I ended up on that website, but um, anyway, there are dozens of surveys you can take about any topic related to psychology. You should check it out, Erica. Um, but the one that I took was on the topic of risk-taking. How likely are you to take a risk? Now, there's a spectrum, right, from people who are seeking risk in their lives all the way to people who are risk-averse. And all of us follow, fall somewhere along that spectrum. How many of you would say that you would self-describe as a risk-taker? You like the thrill of a risk? Raise your hand. A few. And how many of you would say you are more risk-averse? Play it safe, comfortable. Okay. That actually is fairly representative. One thing I learned from this survey is that in, in society there are more people who are risk-averse than there are who are risk-seeking. So here's how the survey started at the very beginning. It says, does the prospect of taking a risk make you panic, or does it send a thrill down your spine? There really are people who get a thrill from the prospect of a risk, and there are people who just really panic. Everyone has a different level of comfort with taking chances. Among other things, risk-taking preferences are influenced by past experience, environment, and potential for reward. Now, of course that's true, right? Because if you've had good experiences with taking risks in the past, you're more likely to take another one. Your environment, how, how safe do you feel, is going to make a difference in whether you feel comfortable taking a risk. And how good is the reward? You know, if, if taking a risk could lead to some great thing, like a million dollars, you might be more likely to take the risk. However, even under similar conditions, two individuals could easily display discrepant or different risk-taking behavior, providing evidence for the considerable role of personality in risk-taking. So psychologists tell us, Ron, you and I should talk after. Ron over here is a PhD psychologist. It is a personality trait that can be measured around risk-taking, right? So I talked with Sarah's sister about this one time, because she just got her PhD in psychology too, that risk-taking is a personality trait that can be measured. So the questions on this test are designed to determine your level of comfort with risk-taking. In other words, our comfort with risk-taking is a combination of past experience, environment, potential for reward, and just the way we're hardwired. Some people are hardwired to be more likely to take a risk than others. So on that spectrum, there are some people who are risk-seeking. They are more likely to bungee jump. They are more likely to skydive. They are more likely to change careers more often and even later in life. They are more likely to break the rules. They are more likely to take a chance at failure for the sake of innovation more likely to take a chance at failure for the sake of innovation. Other people are more risk-averse, safety first, right? More likely to count all the costs before making a decision. 
more likely to stick with what's familiar and comfortable and safe. No judgment here. Each one of us is somewhere along that spectrum, more comfortable taking risks, less comfortable taking risks. But part of life is <clears throat> taking risk, right? Even when it's not comfortable. So, imagine that you are confronted with a choice. Here's the choice. This is an actual experiment that psychologists have done. The choice is between a guaranteed $5 or a coin flip in which you could win $10 or nothing. So you have a choice. I'll give you $5 now, or I can flip a coin, and if it's heads, you get $10, and if it's tails, you get nothing. This is a little bit like the experiment that Sarah talked about in her sermon last week, the marshmallow test, where kids, and this is another real test, kids are given a marshmallow, and they're told you can either eat that marshmallow, or if you wait until I come back, you get two marshmallows. What do you think most kids do? They eat the marshmallow. Now, Sarah was talking in terms of delayed gratification, but there's also a risk thing here. So how many of you would take the $5 guaranteed up front? Just take it. Okay, some of you would. How many of you would go for the coin toss knowing you might win 10 or you might win nothing? Now, this is interesting because this is the exact opposite of the 9 o'clock worship gathering, where two-thirds of the people wanted the $5 up front. So... Correlation, maybe early risers. <laughs> oh, no. Would it change things though if the potential for reward were different? If it wasn't five dollars and ten dollars, but five thousand dollars and ten thousand dollars? Yes. How many of you would take the five thousand? <laughs> yeah, see it changes, right? It depends on the level of the risk and the potential for reward. Isn't this interesting? So we are in the middle of a six-week worship series called Giving Hope. This is our stewardship series for this year, and we're just now two weeks away from Stewardship Commitment Sunday. Stewardship Commitment Sunday is November 9th. When is Stewardship Commitment Sunday? November 9th. Excellent. <laughs> two weeks from today. Two weeks from today, we're going to invite you to take a risk. And the risk is in offering your full self to God. Your prayers, your presence, your gifts, your service, and your witness. All five of those are essential to our ministry and mission. However, I know that one of those five feels like more of a risk than the other four. Which one is it? Gifts, right? Always. Because when we talk about gifts, we're talking about our finances. That always feels like more of a risk than, oh, I'll offer my prayers, I'll, I'll, offer, I'll be present, I'll offer my service. We say this over and over again. Jesus talked more about money and possessions than any other topic recorded in the gospel. You can count it up verse for verse. We don't want this to be true. We want Jesus to be someone who talks about love and forgiveness and hope, and all these other great things. And he did talk about those things. <laughs> but he talked more about money and possessions than any other topic. Why? Because Jesus knew, 2,000 years ago, what we still know to be true today, and that is that as human beings, we struggle with our stuff. We struggle more with money and possessions probably than any other thing in life. It's just true. 
And it feels so very risky to us when we start thinking about that. It's probably more true today than it was 2,000 years ago because the stakes are just so much higher, right? So we're in this series and we're looking at parables that Jesus told. What's a parable? A story. Any old story or a story with a, a message or moral or, or some kind of a lesson in it. Jesus told a lot of parables. And we're looking in particular at six of the parables Jesus told that have to do with money and possessions. It was very hard to find six parables that had to do with money and possessions, right? No. Because many of them do. Most of them do in one way or another have to do with money and possessions. Two weeks ago, we heard the story of the rich fool. Here's the guy that was a farmer, and he had a great harvest. There was such a great harvest, he couldn't store it all. So he donated it all to the food pantry, right? No. No. What did he do? He built a barn. He tore down his barn, which probably was perfectly fine, and built a bigger one so he could store it all. And Jesus says, you fool, you can't, you can't take it with you. What good is that zucchini going to do for you? <laughs> When you, make, when you die. And there was a lesson on sharing from our abundance. Last week, Sarah shared two very short parables. The parable of the pearl of great price and the parable of the treasure hidden in the field. Both of these are very short, but with the same kind of message. They were stories about someone who, who encountered a great pearl or a treasure hidden in a field and sold everything they had to pursue those treasures. Now these weren't, this wasn't about a pearl or treasure, this is about the kingdom of God. The message being that God invites us to give our all, our whole self, for the thing that really matters the most. That's the invitation. And so over these couple of weeks, we've been talking about four things that we all struggle with. Preoccupation with our possessions, security in self-sufficiency. Oh, I don't need anyone else, I don't need God, I've got it all under control. The grasp of greed and the hollowness of hedonism. Hedonism being pleasure seeking pleasure for the sake of pleasure, as if the goal of life is just to be happy. We struggle with these things, and so much of it is about the way we deal with money and possessions. So today, we're going to hear the parable of the talents, or the parable, sometimes called the parable of investment. Now, I just want to say up front. A talent in this story is not your special ability or your gift. What's a talent? It's money. It's a coin. Okay? So I'm going to read from the version called The Message. This is the contemporary interpretation by Eugene Peterson. He actually translates it into money. But you may have heard this talked about talents, and I'll talk more about that in a second. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, is like a man going off on an extended trip. He called his servants together and delegated responsibilities. To one, he gave five talents, or $5,000, which Jim Peterson says. To another, 2,000, and to a third, 1,000, depending on their abilities. And then he left. Now just stop there for a second. You're thinking, why is this guy giving his money away before he goes on a trip, right? <laughs> Seems like an odd thing to do. Well, this is gold. And he's not going to take all of his gold with him on a trip. So this is what people did. They would entrust their possessions to someone else. Well, that's what stewardship is. Entrusting one's possessions to someone else's care. That is exactly the definition of a steward. One who cares for the possessions of another. So this, this man is entrusting 
his talents, his gold, to his servants. He's asking them to be stewards. And then off he goes on his long trip. Right off, the first servant went to work and doubled his master's investment. The second did the same. But the man with the single thousand dug a hole and carefully buried his master's money. After a long absence, the master of those three servants came back and settled up with them. The one given $5,000 showed him how he had doubled his investment. His master commended him, Good work! You did your job well. From now on, be my partner. The servant with the 2000 showed how he also had doubled his master's investment. His master commended him, Good work! You did your job well. From now on, be my partner. The servant given 1,000 said, Master, I know you have high standards and hate careless ways, that you demand the best and make no allowances for error. I was afraid I might disappoint you, so I found a good hiding place and secured your money. Here it is, safe and sound, down to the last cent. The master was furious. That's a terrible way to live. It's criminal to live cautiously like that. If you knew I was after the best, why did you do less than the least? The least you could have done would have been to invest the sum with the bankers, where at least I would have gotten a little interest. Take the thousand and give it to the one who risked the most. And get rid of this play it safe who won't go out on a limb. Throw him out into utter darkness. Ouch! You might say, that master's being unfair. We might even say, Jesus is being unfair, telling this story, right? So let's get to that. First of all, um, I did a little research on the whole thing about talents this week, and, and Eugene Peterson's interpretation, with all due respect, is actually not very accurate. <laughs> a talent, biblical scholars tell us, was roughly equivalent to a, an average laborer's wages over a period of 15 years. So one talent was 15 years' wages, not $1,000. If you multiply that out and prorate it according to today's rates, biblical scholars tell us that 10 talents invested with that first servant was like $5 million. Two talents invested in the second servant, was like $2 million. And the servant who got one talent, that was like being given a half a million dollars. So these are large sums of money, right? So we might say, what's wrong with that third servant who didn't want to risk it all? He was risk-averse, maybe, on that spectrum, and did the safe thing and buried that treasure in a hole, People did this. That's why there was that parable about the treasure hidden in the field. Because people would bury their, their treasure so that it would be safe. What's wrong with that choice that he made? What is wrong with it? I have no idea. It sounds perfectly reasonable, right? But Jesus is saying in this parable that the reward is for the one who is willing to take a risk and invest the gifts they've been given and see returns, see results from that. This is really not a parable about, 
a master and servants and wealth. Anyway, it's a parable, like all the rest, about the kingdom of God. We could draw a lot of messages out of this parable. And trust me, biblical scholars have. There's lots of them, including the way the servants understand their masters. The ones who saw their masters generous were willing to risk and be generous. And the one who saw his master as being um, stingy and judgmental were the ones who were less willing to take a risk. So the way we understand God impacts the way we're really willing to take a risk. But the message I think that's most important for today is very simple. That God cares about how we use the gifts that God has entrusted to us, not for our own sake or for our own benefit, but for the sake of God's kingdom. Each one of us has been entrusted with some gifts. God cares how we use those gifts, not for our own personal gain, but for the sake of God's kingdom. It is so true and so easy to forget that everything we have in life is a gift. Life itself is a gift. That breath you just took, that was a gift. Everything we have in life is a gift. And to be a steward means to see everything as a gift and to strive to use those gifts faithfully, not for our own benefit, but for the sake of God's kingdom. There's something strange about God's economy that's different from human economy that I can't explain. It just is. And God's economy is something like this. When we use the gifts we've been given faithfully in ways that have an impact, God blesses that and makes it more. We see this all through the Gospels. Think about the story of the feeding of the 5,000, how one little boy offered his lunch, a few pieces of bread, a couple of fish. He offers everything he has, and what does God do with it? Multiplies it, and transforms it, and distributes it, and feeds thousands of people who are gathered there on the hillside. This is how God's economy works, and it's different from human economy, and I can't explain it. It just is. Now this week, we are about to celebrate a milestone. Anybody know what the milestone is this week? Someone in the first service said, actually it was Becky, said, Halloween! <laughs> and it is Halloween, but it's also this. Whoops. Look at this. Thursday, October 30th, is the first birthday of Hope House. It was one year ago on Thursday that our first 13 residents moved into Hope House at 14 Sherman Street. We need to have a little birthday party, don't we? How in the world did Hope House come to be? Sometimes I, my head spins when I stop to think about this. This is about economy and risk and the kingdom of God. Hope House came about because this man, Richard Berman, a local real estate developer and philanthropist, the same developer who bought the old Chestnut Street Church, our predecessor church, now Grace Restaurant, 
for several years was watching what this community was doing. And we weren't nurturing a relationship with him, but he's, one day he called me on the phone and he said, I have been watching what Hope Gateway and Hope Acts have been doing. And especially what you're doing in relationship with immigrants. And I'm impressed with that. And I had this idea. The idea is I could buy an apartment building and I could own it and you could have use of it rent-free to house immigrants. What do you think? <laughs> Who gets a phone call like this? This is the parable of the talents. Do you remember in that story, what happens to that one talent that the third servant buried in the ground because he wanted to play it safe? What happened to that talent? No, something did happen with it at the very end. The master said, take that one talent that you've done nothing with and give it to the one who had 10 and multiplied it into 20. So the one, and then, and then the actual, the moral of the story, which Jesus says clearly is, those to whom, I'll see if I can find it. Something like, something like, oh, here it is. Um, those to whom, I can't get it. Anybody know? So those to whom much is given, no. Of those, no, it's not about glasses, it's not in here. <laughs> Much has been given, much will be required. That's it. Of those, thank you, Jamie. Of those to whom much is given, much will be expected. There's this weird thing in God's economy that when you are faithful with a little, you are entrusted with more. When you are faithful with a little, you are entrusted with more. That's why Hope House came to be. Because I think Richard Berman saw this little motley crew of people being faithful with a little and wanted to take the risk of entrusting with us a lot. Can I explain that? No, but that's how God's economy works. And we have seen the kingdom of God unfolding before us at Hope House over the last year, right? We have seen the kingdom of God unfolding. We recently celebrated the first anniversary of this site as well. The end of September was the beginning of our worship and ministry in this location. Again, of those to whom much is given, much will be expected. When we are faithful with a little, we are entrusted with more. 509 Forest Avenue is here because we applied for and received a grant from the New England Conference of the United Methodist Church. It started out with a lot and it backs off to a little over five years. Investment in the ministry and mission of Hope Gateway because people saw the way we have been faithful with a little and have entrusted with us a lot. That's really what it is. This is God's economy. And we are continuing to see the kingdom of God unfold before us, right? I think this happens at, at all different levels. It happens in our own individual lives as well. Now, I'm not talking about a gospel of prosperity here, which some preachers will preach till their hearts burn out. That if, you, that if you're faithful, God's going to reward it and give you a whole bunch more. That is not what I'm saying, so don't hear this. Because this is not about you. It's not about you getting wealthy or you getting more. It's about the kingdom of God. 
It's about how we are entrusted with resources to make a difference, not for ourselves, but for the sake of a broken world. But the truth is still the truth that those, to whom, those of whom much is give, given, much will be required. When we are faithful in a little, we are entrusted with more. In two weeks, we are going to be celebrating Stewardship Commitment Sunday. When is Stewardship Commitment Sunday? <laughs> November 9th, two weeks from today. So today, you will receive, or perhaps have already received, don't leave without one, a stewardship packet that looks like this. And inside this packet, there are a number of materials to help you as you're prayerfully considering your stewardship for the year ahead. There's a cover letter. There's a sheet that says, Our 2015 Budget at a Glance. This is not a budget that will put you to sleep with raw numbers, although we're happy to share that if you'd like to see a copy. We've shared it with our leaders, and it's totally for anyone to look at. But what we've done is to create what's called a narrative budget, taking our budget and actually telling a story with it. How are we using the resources for worship and recovery, wellness, immigrant support, community outreach, congregational care, discipleship formation, community, all the other things. This tells a story, and then on the back there actually are some words from some of you who are telling how your participation in Hope Gateway has made a difference in your own life. I want you to read those, every word of them, because it's beautiful. Then there's another sheet that's to, to in, uh, invite you to think about your giving, your financial giving. Remember we talked about prayers, presence, gifts, service, and witness, but one of them is more risky than the rest. And that is our wallets, our pocketbooks. So this one invites you to think about that in particular, to invite you to think about tithing. Now I know even saying that word scares you right out of your chair. Tithing is a biblical principle, which for thousands of years, people of faith have followed, of giving 10% of our income to God. Now if you want to talk about the risk spectrum, when you think about giving 10% of your income, that feels, you feel risk aversion, don't you? Because that feels like a risk. But what Sarah and I have discovered, and I think nearly anyone who, who tries tithing discovers, is that when you really do it prayerfully, you discover that 90% of your income is really quite enough to live on. And again, it's that God's economy thing. When you're faithful with a little, God entrusts you with more. I want to encourage you, if you have never tried tithing, to prayerfully consider tithing this year. Not about paying the bills, but about a spiritual practice. And if that feels like too big a risk, then take a step closer to it. Try, try giving 5% of your income, or 7 or 2 or whatever it is. But do that intentionally, not giving your leftovers, but giving from the top in gratitude to a God who gives to us abundantly. There are a couple other things in that packet. One about electronic giving, which is a great way to do it. You never have to think about it again once you set it up. And then this card, the Stewardship Commitment card, which invites you to, give, to make commitments in all five of those areas. This is not multiple choice, by the way. <laughs> I want to encourage you to make all five. And then uh, including your, your gifts. You can do that on a weekly or a monthly or an annual basis. I want to encourage you to spend some time over the next two weeks with that card in prayer. Begin with prayer, end with prayer. Let prayer be your guide through all of that. And then bring that card with you completed in two weeks on what day? 
for stewardship commitment Sunday. We look forward to that. Here's the thing. We will never, ever live spiritually grounded lives unless we wrestle with what Jesus had to say about money and possessions. Stewardship is not peripheral to the gospel. Stewardship is at the heart of the gospel. It's about priorities. It's about our relationship with God. It's about our part in the kingdom of God. This is important stuff spiritually. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we do not want this to be true. We want to believe that our money follows our heart. But Jesus said, no, it's the other way around. Your heart follows your money. If you want to know where your heart really is, just look at your credit card statement. Just look at your checkbook register. Just do a little audit of how you spend your cash. That will tell you where your heart is. Is your heart at Dunkin' Donuts? <laughs> or Starbucks? Where, where is your heart? That's, that's the question Jesus invites us to wrestle with. So my prayer as we continue through these last couple of weeks, but even way beyond that, is that we ask ourselves this question, what am I going to do with the resources that have been entrusted to me? Am I going to invest them in the kingdom of God? Where, where I know there'll be returns, where, where life is transformed? Or am I going to dig a hole and bury them in the ground? That's the choice. My prayer is that you'll open your heart to the way God is moving among us to use our gifts in ways that make it